0: Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Munkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. Today, I am, and I hope you are, learning from Eric Partica. Eric was named CEO of the year in 2019 by Business Excellence Awards. He's been awarded top 30 entrepreneurs in the UK by Startups Magazine and The Telegraph said he was one of Britain's most disruptive entrepreneurs. He was the CEO of Chilango, where I thought the burrito bond idea was absolutely sensational. Sadly, like many other hospitality businesses, he got wiped out by COVID. He's formerly with McKinsey, so no slouch. He was at Skype, one of the early team at Skype. And now he works as a peak performance coach for other entrepreneurs and founders. And what we're going to learn from Eric today is that anybody can be extraordinary. In fact, the example he gives is of his son becoming Captain America. So it's that The thing that children are able to do is they're able to step into an identity. And so Eric thinks very powerfully that we just have to create our own identity and then we can step into it. So we have a conversation about what that means in reality. And we need to stop thinking about stress as something that's bad. And in fact, stress can be, if used correctly, something that can power us to be amazing. And then thirdly, it doesn't take much. There might be a reframe, there might be a small movement or an awareness And that can unlock the door to amazing change. I thought this was a fantastic conversation. I'm sure you'll agree. Enjoy.
1: My name is Eric Partaker. I've done um, quite a few different things. So I I, I like to think of uh, my life as the embodiment of John Lennon's quote, life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. So um, (laughs) I started off as a, a strategy consultant with McKinsey and Company. So did that for a bit. Then I ran a McKinsey-sponsored nonprofit trying to stimulate new business development throughout Norway. I'm half, half Norwegian, half American. So I, I like to think on that note that I have the, uh, the kind of the entrepreneurship brain of uh, the American side, but the the openness of the uh, Norwegian side. And then I um, came down to London, joined Skype in its very early days. So we were about 30 or so people, helped with the blitz scaling of that. So we grew to 500 people, uh, were acquired by eBay for $2.6 billion. Following that, I was missing Mexican food, having grown up on it in Chicago, built what became an award-winning chain of uh, Mexican restaurants in the UK called Chilango. And these days, I work with over 30 CEOs, helping them, just drawing on all of those experiences together with some uh, behavioral science from Stanford University. And I help them scale three things in parallel. So their business, of course, which everyone wants to do. But for me, that's the hardware. And if the hardware is to operate correctly, the software needs to be coded correctly. There's two other pillars that need to be scaled in parallel to the business, and that's the person's leadership ability. And then last but not least, are they operating to their fullest potential? Are they at their best, not just in the work front, but also on the health and the home fronts, for example? So I work on all three of those things in tandem, so help them build a better version of themselves, a better leader, and a better company. And now I'm set here with you um, one week away before I move from London to Lisbon, Portugal.
0: Lisbon's lovely, but why move from London to Lisbon? What's the?
1: Oh, multiple reasons. Um, so my wife is Brazilian, Portuguese is in the household. I hear Portuguese nonstop every day. I can't speak obviously as well as my wife, but <laughs> um, but I can speak you know at, a, at an intermediate level and um, beautiful weather, mm-hmm. the kids will like it. And few people know this, I think Portugal could do a better job of marketing it. But um, Portugal is essentially tax-free for the first 10 years that you live there. Oh, I see why that might be an interesting place to go and live in Portugal. Yeah. And do you think that that might have been the number one reason I focused on that country? It might be. No, I think the weather probably. (laughs) 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 To be honest, it wasn't even our first choice. We're actually going to go to Puerto Rico in the middle of the Caribbean. But I have... uh, so I, got, I have two boys. So I have a um, seven-year-old uh, with my wife, Giselle, and then I have a 16-year-old, my my son, Alex. He lives with his mom in, in France. They had only recently moved there from the UK, you know, about two years ago. So he had kind of just reestablished his friendship network. And so to be in the middle of the Caribbean, you know, I I kind of put, put the idea by Alex and obviously with the idea being that he would come and live with us. And he was just frank and honest. He's like, Papa, I've just, totally rebuilt my friendship network there, you know, so to kind of like have to do that again in the middle of the Caribbean. I felt for him and I could totally understand. So I was like, all right, we've got to stay close. And then I discovered that Portugal was, you know, did did you know that Portugal is tax-free?
0: No, I I had absolutely no idea. I'm now very, very interested to hear more about that. Oh yeah, yeah. Because it works, it
1: works super well, right? For businesses like ours, any business really. So as long as, so if you're tax resident in Portugal and you're so on your foreign sourced income, so outside of Portugal, the way it works is that your dividends are zero percent. So provided it's your company and you're drawing all of your money as dividends, which is a majority of you know what I imagine you're doing, what I'm doing, then that's zero percent. Yeah, what's not to like about that?
0: Absolutely, that's okay. uh, interesting. I will go and give that some more thought. And so, is that are you able to do that from your perspective now working with these founders as COVID? Helped Certainly didn't help Chilango as a restaurant chain, but has it helped you as a coach given that now people are much more virtual versus in person and it, it means it's possible to carry on working and, and do it this way?
1: Yeah. So I was, um, I mean, my clients are, they're all over, you know, the world. I'd say two thirds of them are in the UK, but you know, I was working online anyways mm-hmm. for like all the advising, mentoring and coaching I was doing. It was all over, over Zoom. There'd be the occasional, you know, in-person meeting, but I think what everyone's realized, I mean, I've certainly realized this, is that, um, you know, I'm living on the outskirts of London right now. So to go into London and do a meeting, you know, as great as that is, you know, it takes an hour or more to get there. You meet for an hour, an hour or more back. You know, there's that getting ready, right? You can't just like, you know, you don't just like snap the fingers you out the door. Well, yeah, on Zoom, right? Like I have no trousers on right now. So... (laughs) No, but you know what I mean, right? So it's like you end up it's like it's half your day for one meeting. Yeah. And yeah, I get the whole you can't beat the in-person connection. Yeah, you can't, but equally, you know, there's the efficiency. And and the efficiency works two ways. It's it's also easy for my clients to yeah. if they're traveling, not change the session time, just kind of log in. You know, we we do things over Zoom, so it's going to have zero impact. Is the answer basically on on the business for us? So it will just improve our lifestyle and obviously uh, cash flow.
0: Fantastic. Um, so when you're working with uh, founders, you've you've got a book, Three Alarms. What's the what was the what's the genesis of that? I and mean, you use it. You use that as your framework with your clients, don't
1: you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I talk about those three pillars, right? I kind of picture. You know, I have it in my head as like there's this. You want to reach your full potential in work in life, so that's like the the rooftop of the house. And then we got these three pillars that we got to scale. So we got to scale the business, your leadership, and then you as a person. So the book, The Three Alarms, is essentially about that first pillar about um, achieving peak performance. But whereby we define peak performance is, you know, not so much like turning a human being into a Ferrari, but more like. Are you operating at your fullest potential in all the domains of life that matter most to you? And what I propose in the book is that the 80-20, the 20% of things that you could focus on, you know, in terms of work and life for 80% of the improvement is to just focus on your health, your wealth, both making the money and how you invest it or whatever you do with it, your health, your wealth, and your relationships. Those are the three things that we're all, you know, without our health, we're nothing. We spend a lot of time, obviously, working, and you know we come home at the end of the day, right? So to me, that's the 80-20 for, for life, 20% of things you could focus on for 80% of the benefit. And then the question is, okay, well, how do I close the gap between my current and best self in each of those domains? And what I propose in the book is, again, that you shorten your focus. There's so many things out there, how to improve. And I say, no, just focus on three things once again, identity, productivity, and anti-fragility. So IPA, like like the beer, but better for you. Uh huh. Yeah. And, you know, very loose. I mean, we could, you know, go into more depth, but, you know, essentially the reason I choose identity is because um, everyone is pretty unanimous in that they would, you know, who wouldn't want to create an even better future, right? You know, continuously improve like that whole Kaizen spirit, but you have no chance to do that. You know, you have to become something more. You can't continue to be the person you've always been. If you kind of Want to get up a level, so so it starts with identity. That's why that first piece is in there. Second piece, productivity. Why productivity? I'm 45. When I was growing up, you know, it was the saying was knowledge is power, and it was before Google. You know, now knowledge is cheap. So it's all about action. I think these days, right? It's about translating knowledge into action. You can literally acquire knowledge so quickly, so cheaply, and I've not met you know. If, if I'm in a room full of 100 people and I say, raise your hand, if you're super productive, like you're, you're so productive that you're the epitome of productivity, like hardly anybody will raise their hand. It's like everyone feels that they need to be a little bit more productive. It's, it's amazing. And then the anti-fragility piece is there because um, Mike Tyson, life, you know, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? <laughs> so so I, I don't know how it is for you, but if I take 365 days in a year, The number that go to plan for me, I don't know, five, you know, it's, uh, it doesn't need to be macro things like COVID, but I'm talking about more about even just micro things, right? You know, it's just like the day somehow doesn't go to plan. Something happens that you didn't expect. And we spend so much time trying to make that not happen when actually that randomness in the universe, like that's life. That's always happening. So anti-fragility is like a suit of armor whereby every blow the armor takes, the stronger it becomes. Uh The more unexpected and unplanned things that happen to you, the stronger you become. And that's because we can create, have the best identity, you know, operate from our most productive selves. And, you know, the shit will still hit the fan. Things still won't go to plan. And that's your moment, you know, in that moment when you're completely down, um, when things don't go to plan, what do you do next? Do you stand back up? Do you reinvent? Do you create? Do you go? Do you go again? Do you brush it off? To me, that's like the ultimate superpower. So that's why I have that last piece in there.
0: Where should we dive in? Should we dive into productivity or should we dive into fragility or let's go into each of them. Okay. So identity, what's the Well, okay, so so with everything that I teach,
1: one of the important things I try to get across is that you actually already know this stuff. Uh-huh. You know it, you've already done it, you're an expert at it, right? Yeah. So
0: that it's not, it's just when you were talking before and you were saying, you know, put your hands up if the productivity thing, I completely get that. Right. Cause people know there's 10 things that they know about productivity that they're not doing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or if you pick fitness, you know, it's like the Dunning-Kruger effect. Like even if you pick a world-class triathlete or Olympian and you say, you know, are you at peak performance? They'd probably go, ah, no, there's something, you know, I'm still tinkering. Right. Even they probably wouldn't put their hands up. So. Yeah.
1: And that's the whole, that's what I meant earlier about you have to be able to balance two kind of opposing things at the same time. Yeah. You like who you are and how you are, as you are, and I could get a little bit better. <laughs> That's that weird dichotomy. But, um, but it's the difference between striving from like this sense of lack, right? Like I, I need to complete myself versus I need to add something to myself, right? So like a, an extra Lego brick on top rather than something that's filling, you know, like a void somewhere. And there's a big difference between those two.
0: Oh, totally. The way I think about it is, you know, from something versus to something. Yeah, totally. And so if I say, if I say I'm fat, and so therefore I want to be less fat, I get a little bit less fat and then I'm happy. And so I eat again and then you get fat. And that's why people yo-yo as opposed to saying, not I'm trying to get away from being fat, but maybe I want to be fit. Yeah. And therefore when I do something, I'm getting a little bit fitter and I'm still, I'm going towards something and the sort of the, the weight thing then takes care of itself. And it's, it's just a different, it's a different mindset. Like one is continuous success and the other one is a yo-yo of success and failure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's because the, you know, it's the foundation upon which it's built. You know, I had a client who, uh, CEO and, uh, he was struggling with his health goals. And I said, Maybe you're fine, you know, as you are. Maybe you shouldn't try to change anything. Just stay in the shape that you're in because like, you're happy, you know, like that. And it was interesting because when I flipped it around that way, it's like, no, 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 no I definitely do need to change. I want that. <laughs> so, so, okay. So identity. Well, this is going to be packed up soon because um, we're moving next week. But So that little drawing there, we'll start there. So that's from my seven-year-old, Leo. Yeah. Um, and he tried to write Captain America, but, you know. He drew Captain America. Yeah, yeah, he he drew it. Little side note about Leo. He speaks four languages. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Seven years old. But I think that's, maybe that's why he's like, couldn't figure out how to spell that one. (laughs) Too many languages going on in his head. So I got him a Captain America shield. Shield arrives. He drew that uh, to me as a thank you. But when the shield arrived and I gave it to Leo, the most magical thing happened. And this is what I mean. This is we all know how to do this. We, we just got to remember back when, you know, when we were kids. So when he got the shield, he instantly became Captain America. I didn't need to sit Leo down and say, all right, so in this situation, Captain America does this. He doesn't do that. You know, he does these behaviors, not these behaviors. He just, he took on the identity. And as children, we do this effortlessly. We don't even think we don't even know, like, you know, we're not even intellectualizing that. Oh, yeah, why are you doing it? Well, identity drives behavior. We don't even think that way. We just we just assume the identity. And it's just such a powerful thing. You know, if you look at the etymology of the word identity from the two Latin words uh, go into that word, and those two words mean repeated beingness. And I read this uh, in a book from James Clear. and And I thought that was quite fascinating because your identity then is just the sum of whatever things you continuously repeat. And you can approach it from two ways, to try to just continuously do behaviors that make you become that thing, or you can approach it from the top down and say, No, I am that thing. How would I act in a way that's consistent with that? And that I find, and quite a lot of research, which James has, you know, talked about as well, an easier path yeah. to change. And so what I simply did, which relates to the title of the book, The Three Alarms. Is I literally grabbed my phone and at 6.30 AM on the health front, I thought, well, what's the Captain America version of me? What's me at my best on the health front? And I wrote world fitness champion. I have like more injury. I have an ice pack on my knee right now. <laughs> I, I, I literally do. That's why I, like at the beginning, I don't know if you saw, I was like fumbling around. I wasn't like doing something deviant. I was I was actually just uh, getting this, you know, ice pack on on my knee, but I had like tons of injuries. Just a quick aside. So I worked my ass off to make the basketball team in high school back in the States. And um, I made the team and I never played a single game. Like I sat on the bench for two straight years, never got one single minute of game time. So my point being, is that in the same way Leo is not really Captain America, I'm not really a world fitness champion. But did Captain America guide Leo's behavior? Absolutely. And does that identity guide my behavior? And when I remind myself at 6.30 a.m., world fitness champion, at the time that I'm supposed to be going to the gym, mm-hmm. it changes, you know, am I going to back out from the gym? No, because a world fitness champion would never do that. And when I'm in the gym, do I complete the workout even if I don't feel like it? Yes. 9 a.m. next alarm goes off. It says world's best CEO. Am I the world's best CEO? No. But again, that's not the point. It's with the, the remote education, mentoring, coaching, advising business that I'm building right now, it reminds me to think through, well, how will I show up for each and every meeting if I was operating from that vantage point? You know, if that was my identity. And then the last one for me on the identity front. So at 6.30 p.m., final alarm for me goes off. So this is health wealth relationships. Final alarm goes off and it says world's best husband and father to simply prompt the question, how would the world's best husband and father walk through that door right now? Because, you know, again, for me, um, like I was an absolute workaholic maniac for the first half of my career, you know, hundred hour work weeks at McKinsey, helping to scale Skype, Building a restaurant chain in London not easy. There's not a lot of days
0: and there's plenty of nights. Yeah.
1: And so, uh, so I'd get home, and I knew intellectually that I should do better, you know, at home, but I wasn't though. And so, uh, my wife might ask for some help on something, and I, you know, want to push it off. And uh, can we do it on the weekend? I'm exhausted. She wants to talk about you know, some kind of issues or problems she's having. Oh, you know, I don't have the mental capacity. You know, that sort of stuff. That's not how the world's best husband would respond, though. Yep. Kids would want to play, I'm too tired, right? Or I got to finish this one last email. That's not how the world's best father is. Yep. Point being, to wrap it up on identity, having a target, having something to aim for, and reminding yourself in your own words, what you define as best in each of those domains and just having a simple mechanism to cue that, it just changes, like it changed the way I started to walk through the door because I wanted to behave in congruence with what I had said was best. I wanted to win my own game.
0: Yeah. On the identity thing, what do you think about Robert Dunbar, you know, known for the Dunbar number, but some of the other research he's done is sort of backs up this. We are the sum of the people we spend most time with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you see that with identity? Does that, do you have to make deliberate decisions to support that identity by changing possibly the people that you're with if you if you wish to make a change certainly been my experience
1: you know I I I definitely had to you know at different points in life look at okay who am I spending my time with and decide to spend less time with certain people or no time and more time with others you know Jim Rohn said the same thing where the you're the sum of the five people that you spend the most time with so I I think that's an interesting point. It's like identity kind of rubs off as well, right?
0: Yeah. Well, it's like don't play tennis with people who are better than you. It's not going to improve your game. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've got to come in contact with people who can help support your vision of a better self.
1: Yeah, exactly. And um there'll be people in every domain that um you know, so on the health front, you're going to have, you know, Anybody listening right now, you know who your unhealthy friends are, you know who your healthier friends are, and you know that when you spend more time with the unhealthy ones, it probably rubs off on you in terms of your own health choices. And it's the same on work, right? <laughs> you, meet, you meet them in the pub, not down the gym.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I'm not saying
1: none of this is, it's all about just making progress. You know, none of it's about trying to be perfect. I still screw up massively, you know, make bad business decisions, say stuff that I regret, you know, five minutes later, you know, to my wife. I'm like, oh, gosh, was stupid. Why did I say that? You know, I'll still lose my cool with, you know, one of the boys, right? I'll still grab a donut instead of an apple, right? So these things still happen. But what I've experienced is that it's not that you stop falling down but that when you do fall down, you're not falling down as hard and you're standing back up more quickly. It's just ever increasing. So it's sort of like, it's still this you know, jagged line of, you know, it's not perfect, um, but it's, it's trending upward.
0: So with the identity, I can absolutely see how coaching can help, right? A lot of people I meet suffer from imposter syndrome we had some new clients down on the farm this week and, you know, they're all guys in their early twenties as a leadership team. They're running the biggest company they've ever run. In fact, some of them are in the only company they've ever worked for, right. As founders, founders and, and exec young executive team of this fast growing tech business. And so, you know, there's some coaching around identity and, you know, do you have, do you have a trainer when you go to the gym? Do you have a personal trainer?
1: Yeah, I do now because uh, I don't know about you, but, after that recent uh, experience with the world, I found it super challenging. So, you know, I had to create that necessity. You know, it, it is it is the mother of invention. And when you have to show up, you show up.
0: And, uh, and I've, I certainly personally have had some therapy and some coaching around my relationships, and that's been really helpful. So, you know, do you coach your CEOs through all of that? I mean, are you doing the relationship piece as well, or are you just sort of doing the identity piece, and you advise them to get help on relationships and and fitness.
1: Oh no, I'm not a therapist, um, and I tell them that. Right? It's like this. It's not therapy, but I do. I do coach. I coach on everything from when I'm thinking about strategy. I'll, I'll draw from McKinsey, rapid scaling. I'll draw from the Skype days. Uh, hired over two thousand people at Chilango, so I will draw from that experience and. And I've had ups and downs health-wise, relationship-wise. So I'll draw on all of those experiences because we're all one thing. This is this is the problem that I had. And this is the, the, the thing that made me start to kind of come apart in the first half of my career is that things were too compartmentalized and later became never, you know, in terms of improving health and, you know, being a better, you know, husband and all that stuff. And so I tried to, one of the interesting things that people will say is that, it's the first time they've ever seen kind of all their goals across all the areas of life most important to them on a single sheet of paper.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, and I think that's what's powerful because life, life is one thing. So no, I won't do like therapy on the, the relationship stuff, but if I think somebody's sitting on something and not saying what needs to be said to their other half or being dishonest, then I'll, I'll push them to remedy that because that dissonance will just sit there and it will affect business. You know, it will affect their health. All this stuff affects each other, right?
0: I remember doing uh, one of the tools in Scaling Up, which is on the shelf behind you. One of the tools in there is Vern's one page personal plan. Right. And so, you know, one of the ways to do that is to just sort of flip it over and write the eulogy that you want somebody to, you know, be reading at your funeral. And that sort of then it's uh, are you building eulogy points or are you building CV points, you know, from a work perspective? I found that quite uh, sobering. And then the other thing Vern said is, look, if you're a bloke, you're going to need six people to carry your coffin because you're still going to weigh something. Right. And like, who are those six people and write their names down? Like, because you probably already know them. Right. So what are you doing to make sure that you stay in touch with them? Yeah, Are you? doing enough. Assuming those six people meet your identity needs. But, you know, I think, as you say, people then don't often, when I've done that with clients, none of my clients have ever sat down and thought, go to the end and look back and then think, what am I doing in the next 90 days not that gets me all the way to where I want to be, but make some changes. What is it that's not congruent with my vision for the future? And, and you're right, people have a business strategy. Well, actually, no, that's not true. Lots of people don't have a business strategy. They're just sort of bumbling along, but they're bumbling along in work and in life, you know, and fitness. They're just sort of bumbling along.
1: Yeah, and it's they're,
0: they're drifting.
1: And you drift when you don't have a target, when you don't have something to shoot for. But when you have a personal best, You know, I start the day and I just think about those identities and I think, okay, what's the one thing that I could do whereby if I did just one thing in each of those areas? I call my champion proofs like they would evidence that I was stepping into that champion version of me. And now I get to the end of the day and I ask myself, okay, how did I do? And if I won, I put a W on the calendar for the day. You know, I, I won the day. If I didn't, i put an L, not for loss, but for learn. And then I just write, well, what did I learn, right? What did I do that was less than me at my best? And the simple game that I play is, um, um, you know, with, you know, 30 days or whatever in a month, uh, I just try to not have more than six L's in the month so that I have an 80% success rate. Again, this isn't perfect. It's like, you know, 80% is good enough. And I, never two L's in a row, right? So if I ever have an L, it's like, I'm great. next day is a rebound day. It's like intentionality suicide when you allow yourself to kind of start stringing together those L's. That's when you got to pull the nose up.
0: Yeah. Look, I, I interviewed Joe Weldon, who's Vern's speech coach. Joe's 80. And so he said, you need to read a book called Younger Next Year. And when you read the book, what it says is, look, after 35, the tide's gone out. You've got to work out and get sweaty six days a week. And so, you know, I do the same thing. The day I don't work out, it'll be It'll be different, but you can't have two non-workout days in the same week. Yeah. You can't have two non-workout days back to back. And then once you do that, you've, you've got to pass for the days that for whatever reason, you can't do it or you feel shit, Yeah, but then you just got to get back on the bike or back out running. And it makes a massive difference. Oh, yeah, huge. And,
1: you know, we're talking about the more personal stuff too, but the identity stuff on the work front makes a massive difference as well. Before I had that intentionality of how would the world's best CEO behave, like I would do the crap that you know everyone you know does. Like uh, a meeting ends and uh, somebody says, "Okay, are you going to send that to me?" And yeah, yeah, I'm going to send it, but you know, you don't properly record it. Maybe you leave it in your head, thinking, "Oh yeah, I'm going to remember to do that." Three days passes, they're now chasing you. You know, you're not on top of your game, right? You you say you're going to follow up on something, but you don't you promise somebody, somebody will have something on Tuesday, but you send it on Wednesday afternoon, you know, all this, like, and it's like literally death by a thousand cuts, like in the absence of having any form of intentionality with your professional identity, it literally is death by a thousand cuts. And you're just destroying people's faith in you as a leader unknowingly, because all these little things that you do, which amount to you not being as reliable as you should be. But when you have that identity, and you're constantly on a daily basis, reminding yourself of it, like just weird crap happens, you know, you're in the meeting and somebody says something and you're like, yeah, I'll follow up with that. And then you have that little voice in your head that, and I know I will, because I have this identity. I'm definitely going to do it. And the acting as if you are informs your behavior. The more you start to behave consistently with that new identity, the more you become that The less thought it requires, the more and bigger behaviors you do. And it just keeps going in a circle, but you're spiraling up, getting better and better. And it happens in a big way. You know, as personal as this stuff sounds, it's massively powerful, you know, behind office doors as well.
0: What that makes me think of is it's the difference between getting promoted in a company and changing companies. Yeah. Right. So, you know, like so often people get promoted in a company and people see them and people see themselves in the job that they used to do or the way in which they used to show up and work. And so when people get promoted, sometimes it's a real challenge and often it's much easier to change companies. And then agree with yourself. What was it about the old place? What was about the behaviors that, like that I don't want to be known for here and be really intentional in the new business?
1: And a lot of people just keep doing that. And then they come with that new fire and energy and they just go back to their old ways. And they go back to their old ways because they're not actually identity driven. Or they'll be sitting there in the company and they'll see somebody who got promoted ahead of them. And then they'll just sit there and they'll be just like, ah, you know, that ass, you know, such an overachiever. <laughs> right. And it's like, are they really an overachiever or... Are they just working very diligently and you know persistently on their reliability, on their you know, positivity, on their support of others? Are they just doing those fundamentals better than you? Like that's that's really all that they're doing.
0: I mean, I suppose I know the answer to this, but you know, you can't assume an identity which then doesn't play to your strengths. I mean, your identity has to also be, you know, I know when Leo picks up his Captain America thing, he's play acting Captain America and you know, Mike. I've got two girls who are seven and five, and they, you know, there's no, there's nothing between their subconscious and and their play acting. It's like they can be ghosts or they can be witches or they can pick up a piece of wood and they're on a broomstick, and like to them, it's as real as if they're in Harry Potter movie. But I don't know. It's funny. We we, we did. Uh, Patrick Lencioni's got a new thing called Working Genius, and so one of the one of the ladies on the team here, you know, she's all about execution and you know, enablement and the tenacity to so like get shit done, right? but she wishes she was more strategic and it's like, you know, she could decide she wants to be more strategic, but it's just, yeah. Like the idea generation is not her thing. Right. And so you can't, you can't have, you can't try to adopt an identity that isn't you.
1: Well, yeah, that's, I mean, I don't know. Let's talk about it. That's an interesting thought. Um, you know, I would say, yeah, it, it certainly should cater to your strengths, It also needs to just cater to your kind of like your heart and your desire because there's tons of things that I'm not strong at, but you know, I've recently got better at because I kind of assumed the identity of, okay, well, these are the things I need to do in this industry to kind of get better at these things, and I became stronger at them.
0: Go on, give us an example.
1: YouTube, geez. so okay, so I launched my YouTube channel a year ago, July first. I would never done a video before. Go, go look at my first video.
0: It's like, It's like you, that's not true. You did the burrito. You did the ad. You are easily amazing on video before you launch your YouTube channel. Okay, But
1: I still still found it incredibly difficult to stand up and like, you know, just to to camera speaking extemporaneously about various subjects. You're right. I've done it on a script before. I just had this identity though in my head of, okay, the world's best CEO in this industry get out there and do that stuff. And so, you know, now I'm on the 150th video, you know, after like 11 months and it just gets, it gets better and better. So that's not something I was comfortable doing, speaking, you know, like no script, you know, in front of the camera like that, but I've gotten better at it. I think the other thing too, when part of, uh, if you, you know, if you're choosing the right identity, it should, you know, part and parcel of that should be not just recognizing, your strengths, but also recognizing when a needed strength can be fulfilled by someone else, right? So if you're operating from the right vantage point of trying to be at your best, you know, maybe you'll act more quickly to put your hand up and say that I'm actually weak at this and I'm not good at this and I should delegate this to someone else rather than trying to prove because I've attached it to this false identity that I need to do this in order to be at my best, right? That person that I think that I should be hiring Know if I'm operating from the vantage point of the world's best CEO, well, like let's just get them hired now. Let's hire them now. Like, let's pull that forward because you know, I'm botching whatever it is up, you know, in the meantime. So, I think it can power you in maybe you know, different ways that go beyond just what your own strengths are.
0: Okay. And so, other than therapy, how do you get? coaching around relationships other than therapy <laughs> well because i'm just thinking because like you know the business coaching you there's there's books you i suppose you could read a self-help book on relationship but it's not the same is it? I mean, right. we, you know the the fitness the business that's coaching but you know if, if you want to work better on your relationships where do you where does where does one go to get coaching on that so
1: i'll share some of the things i do you know with the ceos that i'm working with so So the answers are, you know, I think a little bit easier than a lot of people think. A lot of people, when it comes to relationship improvement, think from the wrong vantage point and don't think of all sides of the coin. So let me explain. So if I ask a CEO, how can you improve things with your wife or your husband? They'll immediately say whatever comes to their mind. And then when I say, okay, if you were to ask your spouse, what's the number one thing that you should do better, more often, or more consistently, so, such that you improve in their eyes, what would their answer be? And they might take a guess, but then I have them go and find out that answer. And it's often different from what they thought. Mm-hmm. So that's the proactive side of relationship improvement, but approach from the right vantage point, which is not yours. You know, like Marshall you know, Goldsmith, if you want to know how you're doing as a leader, ask those who you're leading, right? So if you want to know how you're doing as a husband or a wife, ask the person that you're the spouse to, right? And Take whatever it is that they say, and then then we take that back into our, our session. We say, okay, how do we turn that into a tangible goal? Whatever that intangible thing is that they said, let's try to make it tangible and measurable somehow. Yeah, that leads to relationship improvement. But that's only half of the coin. You got proactive and reactive sides relationship improvement. Proactive and reactive sides to all things in life. So what I mean by that is that um, there's another side to relationship improvement, which is simply achieved by better reacting to that person. Mm-hmm. And what I do there is I ask them to think about, because we all have this and we we tend to have this more with the people we spend the most time with, you know, in close quarters at home. So, right. So let's be honest. We've all treated, let's be <laughs> honest. We've all treated a member <laughs> of our household in a way at some point in time that we wouldn't dare treat like a colleague in front of other work colleagues. or You know, like we do things. I'll be dead honest. Uh, uh, my wife said, to, it was one of the most painful things she said to me. She's like, I can't believe you just talked to me that way. She said, you sure as fuck wouldn't have spoken to your friend Lewis in that way, you know, who I was also working with at the time. She's like, why the hell do you treat me that way? The person who supports you more than any person on the planet. I was like, ah, oh, man, I, you know, and she was right, right? But we the point is we take... We take our relationships, our most important ones for granted, unfortunately. And the path to improving those proactively, ask them what you should improve. But then reactively, there will always be things that people in our house do that trigger us, that bring up the worst in us. It could be, you know, uh, when the kids listen or not, the first time you ask them to brush their teeth before going to bed. Or, yeah. It's like I'm speaking from experience. <laughs>
0: Oh, well, look, my wife said to me the other week, she said, we've put the stopwatch on. She said, Leslie and I were in the kitchen. We put the stopwatch on. You took the kids upstairs to brush their teeth. And and we reckoned it would be about two minutes before you shouted at one of them. Yeah. And and it was two minutes and three seconds. And it's like, I didn't didn't even know I did it. Yeah. And this
1: is a scary thing, too, because this still happens to me. Right. But when you become more identity driven, you start to become more aware of it because when you still make the mistakes, but when you make the mistakes because you had something that you were shooting for, you think to yourself, "Shit, that was not world's best father there, was it? right? And And it's good because it becomes a little bit more painful. You know, pain is good. So I have my clients just create a trigger list for your spouse. What's the thing he or she says or does that when they do that makes your blood boil. You know, For the kids, what's the thing that they do? and and I just have them identify the triggers. But then in the follow-up session, what I say is, okay, And and they're often quite different, right? It it could differ by each member of the family. And what I always say is that the genius thing with the solution to these quite disparate things is that it's universal and that all you have to do is to develop the habit of pausing between the stimulus, whatever those triggers are, and your response. And this is also a way to build your antifragility, whereby stress builds strength. When the thing that happens that triggers us happens in the absence of any space between that, our response is used just kind of vulnerably shared, which has happened to me as well is fused right next to the trigger. And it's often a suboptimal emotional response that we can't even remember sometimes.
0: And it's interesting because I, I took up meditation guided meditation and and what I realized was it's actually very difficult. And you know, you're listening on the app and the guy goes, um, so you've probably just had a thought. And you're like, how did you know I just had a thought? And it's like, it's okay. It's okay. Cause it's actually hard to blank your mind. Right. So actually what I, the, the biggest takeaway from me from the meditation was that stop being so hard on yourself. If you've got that gap between the trigger and the reaction, like it's hard to pull them apart, but just noticing it is the start. Don't be hard on yourself. So d- don't give up Totally, keep going.
1: And it's so hard at first. Right, you know, to take space, create space in the form of a deep breath, or walking out of the room, or whatever it may be. But when you do that and you disconnect the emotional response, you actually give yourself the chance to choose like an optimal response, more congruent, say, with one of those identities that you've already chosen. And at first, it feels you know a little bit like fake and not you, and you're like, I, I said, can you please brush your teeth? (laughs) right but but over time you get better and better at and when the stressors happen you get to this nirvana moment where a person is doing something that triggers you and as they're doing it a smirk appears on your face because you're like (laughs) i know exactly how i'm going to respond to this And it is not how my old self used to respond. You already know what your response pattern is going to be. Because when you pause, when you just create a little bit of space, like in the form of a deep breath, again, walking out of the room and you just ask yourself, what's the best way to respond? This is a beautiful thing. You, every single person on the planet knows the answer. Like you, you, you will know what's the optimal way to respond to something versus anything less by just pausing and asking yourself, you might not be very good at it in the beginning and you might like pause and then still blurt something out but you will get better. Anyways, to wrap up terms of like, you know, coaching for relationship improvement. That's one of the basic things that I do is get them to realize there's two sides to the relationship improvement coin, proactive, reactive, proactive, great. What you think, ask them what they think. And then half of the improvement can just come from you just reacting better to them and the relationships improve before they ask any of these questions. I have them ask their spouse, If a 10 is I'm the perfect spouse in the world, absolutely no room for improvement. And you, of course, want me to improve. So give me the right answer. You know, give me a a good, truthful answer. What's my score? And so they'll get like maybe a six or a seven. And then we measure again in three months time. And suddenly they're like an eight or a nine. And that's all that matters. You know, the score in the person's eyes that you have the relationship with.
0: Yeah. Eric, that's magic. I was also thinking about the pausing because there's a bit of research that says people who pause before they speak are deemed or perceived to be smarter. Yeah. So there's a, there's an added there's an added benefit. Yeah. yeah. Hello, this is Dominic Monkhouse from Monkhouse and Company. Interrupting my own conversation with this week's guest on the Melting Pot. I do the melting pot because I want to put tools in the hands of CEOs, managing directors and business leaders, tools that will help them change their business and get the outcomes that they're struggling with. And there's one other thing that we do as well that helps with that. And we run workshops at the management lab at the farm in Wiltshire. And the next one is the afternoon of the 6th of July. So come along and we'll walk you through some practical tools. You can see for yourself how these tools help you deal with the challenges of growth in your business look forward to seeing you then now back to the conversation what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier there's a
1: quote that i absolutely love it's a late american essayist his name is john Burroughs. nobody really knows much about john he wrote this quote uh it's on my wall here leap and the net will appear And it just means so much to me in so many different ways. I spent too much time in the first half of my career in consumption mode, trying to just acquire more and more knowledge. And uh, now I'm learning far more, much more rapidly by focusing on like contributing. How do I actually make things better for people? Because you can learn in that way as well. So yeah, I wish I would have uh, had the faith to move more quickly into the unknown leap, have the faith that the net will appear. It will work its you know way out. Not, not keep myself back thinking I'm not ready yet.
0: And what books have been an inspiration to you or what are you reading now or what do you think people should pick up? I got books all
1: around me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: oh my gosh, I have so many. I have this like habit lately where I'm reading like several at once. So I like this... Um, so Stephen Kotler, it's called the Art of Art of Impossible. You know, it's a primer in peak performance. Um, I've just literally started it, but he's he's an incredible writer um, and very accomplished in the field. And again, peak performance is like like not turning yourself into a Ferrari. It's just how do you you know perform at your best? Yeah. What's your best? Um, yeah. Exactly.
0: Exactly. What else? You've got three on at the go at the minute. What else are you reading? That's good. Uh, multipliers. Liz Wiseman, she, yeah, she's been on the podcast. That's it's a great book, isn't it? Yeah,
1: so I like that one a lot. I mean, the name—I just love, like the concept of like you know, creating leverage. Yeah,
0: and the fact that I mean, when I spoke to the thing that I took away was that seventy percent of us are unintentionally diminishing those around us. It goes back to that intentionality and the identity again. It's like you know, you would ask those people, "Is that what you're trying to be?" And they'd say no. Now I'm trying to be the best leader or the best CEO, or the best father. Okay, well, you know, how do you be more intentional? And so it's a great workbook for how to spot the things you're doing that undermining what you're trying to do. And it can be
1: so subtle, like you can be undermining somebody just with your tone of voice or just like, you know, how dismissive you are with your body language. And yeah, um, you know, I, I haven't started reading this yet, but it is next up on my list. Fix
0: this next. Okay, Mike McCallowitz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had him on the podcast as well. He's he's very, very. His, his stuff's really good.
1: Yeah, because I, I I like the premise of it, which is that that we all, you know, because uh, as as an entrepreneur, you kind of just want everything fixed all at once. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh... yeah Yeah. and so i like i I like the the premise of it again i haven't gone into the detail here but you know essentially that you need a system to be able to basically prioritize what you should fix next and that building a business is essentially no more than understanding what things to fix in the right you know sequence and all that so and then of course last but not
0: least the three alarms three alarms available available where all good books are sold Very, very, very good. Eric, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Uh, Safe travels to Portugal and stay in touch.
1: Likewise. All right. Thanks, man. Good to see you again.